Through the lens of grace, through the lens of Jesus, we approach God not as slaves to the law, but as sons and daughters of God. And it reorients everything. And people have a tendency to approach God one way or the other, right? But what he's, what he's argued again and again and again is that you can't approach God both ways. He argues that to whatever extent you approach God through the lens of the law, is it to, to, if you're leaning 20% of your weight into that, that's 20% of your weight that's not leaning into Jesus. And therefore, that's a bad deal, right? We're called to lean 100% of our weight into Jesus. And we've said repeatedly in the series, right, that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's what Paul said again and again and again. But you try to add Jesus plus something, it equals nothing. Because you're no longer relying only in Jesus, you're relying in Jesus and your own sense of goodness. Jesus and your own sense of morality, right? And the gospel's already said, look, we're not good enough, we're not moral enough. This is why Jesus came, right? So, uh, so that's been the argument that's been made, and Paul kind of continues that here. And last week... We uh, ended with Galatians 5, 6, and we said the, the kind of the crescendo was the only thing that counts, the only thing that counts, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. So we said, listen, this is a purpose statement. This is a destiny statement for your one and only life, right? It means that you only have two jobs every day. The first job you have every day is to do something to build and grow your faith and your trust in Jesus and his word. And then the second responsibility, the second purpose that you have every day is to love other people. Not the way that you would want to be loved, but your call and my call is to love other people the way that Jesus has loved me. And there's a world of difference between loving other people the way that you would want to be loved and loving other people the way that Jesus has loved you. And that's our call, right? And so Paul argued last week, look, don't lose your freedom. You have a freedom in Christ, but you can drift out of that. Don't lose it. Don't walk away from that. Don't drift back into slavery because the current of this life, the current of most religious cultures will push you back into slavery, back into moralism if you let them, right? This week, what Paul is going to argue is he's going to say, look, you have a freedom that can be lost, don't lose it, but just because you have freedom, don't abuse it. Don't abuse the freedom that God has given you. There's only, uh, there's only two things, right, that, that get in the way of you abusing your freedom. It's selfishness and sin. Don't use your freedom in a way that's selfish or in a way that's sinful. And so let's kind of walk through his argument. So we'll start again in Galatians 5, 6. He says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. So what was happening, and there was, there was a religious teacher that was kind of a rival to Paul that was teaching the same group of believers, and he was saying, listen, you have to trust Jesus and you have to be circumcised like a Jew. 
and you have to follow the laws of the Old Testament. So he was saying, yes, it's a good idea to trust Jesus, but you also have to be circumcised and you also have to keep the law. So he says, look, whether you're circumcised or not doesn't matter. Only faith in Christ that expresses itself in love. And then look what he says in verse 7. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. So he's saying, look, the one who called you is Jesus. And by listening to this teacher, by listening to this man, you're you're moving away from Jesus. You're moving away from the one who has called you. And then he makes an analogy, verse 9. He says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, uh, leaven is a little different than yeast, but it has the same effect. You add a little leaven to a big batch of dough, that little bit of leaven will completely transform that whole batch of dough. And so he's saying, listen, if you even listen to a little teaching like this, that's going to that's gonna transform the way you think about and view God and His Word. Don't do that. And then in verse 10, he says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty whoever he is. And then in verse 11, he says, But if, if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. So what, what's happening is that this, this rival teacher is saying that Paul agrees with him, that Paul would want them to be circumcised as well. And Paul's response is, no, if I was preaching that people needed to be circumcised, I mean, the the Jewish people aren't going to persecute me for that. There's no persecution in that. The reason I'm being persecuted is because I'm preaching the cross of Jesus, because I'm following after Jesus. It has nothing to do with circumcision. And then he begins to talk about how we can abuse our freedom, right? In verse 13, he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Now, next week, we're going to look at the difference between a man or a woman that would walk in their flesh, in other words, in their own selfishness, in their own sense of self, versus the man or woman that would walk in the Spirit. And so what he says is, look, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for selfishness. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity to magnify or glorify yourself. Use your freedom. Rather, he says, here's how to properly use your freedom. Through love. This sounds a lot like Galatians 5, 6. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. He's saying through love, serve one another. So it's interesting when you see that serve one another, there are about 50 one another's in the New Testament. In this instance, Paul is saying you should have a love for one another that expresses itself in service to one another. In other words, it's not enough to just look at somebody else in the family of God and to say, I love you. 
that real love pours itself out in service to other people. And in this sense, love is not a feeling at all, right? Because the problem with seeing love as a feeling is that a lot of times we don't feel like loving, right? We don't have the love to give. So what he's saying is, look, love is an action, it motivates the action. You, you serve other people through love. Love is the motivation, but love is an action. It is not a motivation. Now, um, if you were to ask Paul what faith expressing itself in love might look like, uh, Paul would rattle off a list. He would say things like this. He would say, well, serve one another. He says it here right? He would say, as he does in Ephesians 5.22, submit to one another. Or he might say it this way, forgive one another. Or he might say it this way, encourage one another. Or restore one another. Or accept one another. Or care for one another. Or he's going to say this a little bit later in the book, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. A little later in the book, he's going to say, restore one another. Here's what I want you to see. The one another's of the New Testament are specific applications of Jesus' command to love one another. So in other words, the New Testament writers are telling us what love in action looks like. So in other words, here's what I want you to hear. It's unloving not to serve other people. It is unloving to not forgive people when you know, they sin against you. It's unloving to refuse to submit to others in the body of Christ. It's unloving to refuse to restore a man or woman to the family of God, to the body of Christ. It's unloving not to accept someone else in a small group or in a family or in the family of God. It's unloving not to care for one another. It's unloving not to bear with one another. And it is unloving to refuse to carry someone else's burden, right? I want you to imagine a world where people were skeptical of what we believed, but envious of how well we treated one another. I'll tell you, folks, once upon a time, that was so. Once upon a time, the early church loved in such a way that it would win, it would win over the whole Roman Empire. Because those people loved one another and they expressed it through the one another. So here's what I'm telling you. What if, what if, what if, what if we all one anothered one another better? What if every one of us in this room were to get deadly serious about one anothering one another better? Jesus said that was how people would know that we were his disciples, by the kind of love that we have for one another. So here's what I want to do. In the time that we have left, I want to talk about 
why we often refuse to love. We'll do that last. And, but in the meantime, I want to elevate three of these one another's in the name of love and tell you why it's so vital and why it's unloving if, I, if we refuse uh, these three things. So the first one is uh, the command to bear with one another. And I love this command. I love this command because it challenges our assumptions about Christian community. It challenges our deeply held beliefs about what it means to, to be in relationship with other believers. Because I think sometimes we think that in a church, if everybody loves Jesus, we'll never disappoint one another. We'll never let one another down. We'll never hurt one another. And so sometimes we want to find fault in a local church where that's happening. And the reason I love this bear with each other command, uh, it comes from Colossians 3, right? Bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord's forgiven you, right? So you actually have two one another's in this one verse. He's saying the loving thing to do is to forgive and the loving thing to do is to bear with other people, people who are different than you, people who think differently than you, people who hurt you, people who speak maliciously against you. Bear, bearing with others is a gritty command. In other words, what it indicates is that it isn't easy in a church to get along with other people. Right? Because people are people no matter whether, where they are, whether they're in a hospital or a school or a factory or a church. And we're all people in progress, right? At different stages of our faith journey in Jesus. And so we have to bear with those who are at a different stage of their faith journey than we are, right? Or than you are. This bear with command is a command to live with the consequences of someone else's sin, right? It, what it tells us is that Christian community isn't meant to be easy. It's not meant to be an angelic choir, and it's not meant to be, you know, this perfect place where everybody just gets along perfectly. And so this command to bear with one another is so important. So let me just ask you, how are you doing when it comes to bearing with someone that you're bumping up against, that you're, you know, Scripture says, hey, iron sharpens iron, right? And, but here's the thing about iron sharpening iron. When two swords are clashing together all the time, that creates friction, right? It creates friction and it creates uh, stress and turmoil. And we're meant to grow from that. And let me, so let me give you an example. When, whenever I teach a new starting point class here, I always tell all those folks that are kind of new to our church, I say the worst thing that could happen to you is that you would get in a small group with a bunch of people that are all just like you. That would be, from a Christian community perspective, that would be the worst thing that could ever happen to you. And, and here's why. Because if God wants to teach you patience, 
how does he do that? He puts people that try your patience, right, in your life. If God wants to teach you how to love people better, what's he going to do? He needs to put someone who's really hard to love in your life so that you grow in love, right? If God's going to teach you how to really care for other believers in the body, what would be ideal? What would be ideal is for him to teach put you in a group with somebody that you don't really want to care for, right? So that you could learn how to really and deeply care. See, I'm telling you that the one another's of Scripture are, are the way that we grow up into Jesus Christ. This is why I'm going to make a very bold statement. This is why it is unloving for Christians to stay at home on Sunday morning and watch TV preachers on television. You want to know why? Because there's not another one another in the room for them to one another, right? They're not able to live out any of these one another commands. See, there's nobody in the room for them to one another except, or there's not another other in the room for them to one another. Whew, I have a headache. Anybody else have one? Right? There's not. See, listen, you can't grow in your faith unless you're in a community of believers because that's where one anothering happens and it's where you learn to one another. And so what if, what if all of us in this room were more sold out to one anothering one another better? I mean, what might happen in our community? What might happen in our church? Right? If, if we were willing to one another, in fact, let me just say this kind of bold statement. The reason that a lot of people do stay home and watch television preachers on TV is so they won't have to one another someone else. Because it's easy to sit and listen to a TV, right? Nobody there to grate on your nerves. Nobody there to test your patience. Nobody there to disagree with you. Nobody there for you to move forward in your faith. Nobody. So, it's unloving to stay home and watch. Now, let me make a couple of um, exceptions. Obviously, if somebody's homebound, right? If somebody can't get to church, I'm not talking about them, right? That's legitimate. But for the rest of us, I mean, all of you are here. So it certainly applies to all of you, right? It applies to all of us. Uh, so, yeah. All right, so bear with one another. Love that command. Here's the second uh, command I'd like to elevate. Uh, and, and it's this one, accept one another, accept one another. So the, here's the reason I love this one another. Because in our world, acceptance doesn't come very easily. We live in a world that's very polarized. We live in a world where there are a lot of different perspectives, right? We live in a world where there's a lot of different political views. We live in a world where there's a lot of things to disagree about. I mean, you know, how, how, how much of what's happening in the world is a result of climate change? How much isn't, right? I mean, it is so easy in our day and age to disagree with other people. And do you know, so you know why? I love this word accept one another in a world of disagreement because it will not do in a local church for someone to have this posture 
Well, pastor, you don't understand. She's a Democrat. Or he's a Republican. Accept one another. Just as, and, and again, it's not accept one another the way that you would want to be accepted. It's accept one another the way that God in Christ has accepted you. That has no expiration limit. It has no uh, limit on when you should stop doing it, right? Because Jesus doesn't ever stop accepting you. So our call, your call, my call, is to accept people that we disagree with, to love them anyway. I'll never forget this. I love to share this story here from the pulpit. If you've been here a couple of years, you've probably heard me share it before. But I remember being in a staff meeting years ago, and we were discussing an issue, and I was in the minority. My staff did not agree with me about the thing that we were talking about. And I remember for the This is so embarrassing. But for the first time in my life, I looked at this circle of people around the table and I had this mind-blowing thought and it was this. These people don't think like I do. They don't process like I do. And if you've been married more than about five minutes, you've had a, a similar conversation in your own mind, in your own head, right? But do we get off the hook just because somebody doesn't process the way that we do or just because someone disagrees with us? No, we don't. In the body of Christ, Democrats are supposed to accept and love Republicans. And Republicans are supposed to love and accept Democrats. And gun control people are supposed to accept and love people who don't, who don't believe in gun control. I mean, you name it, right? There's all these issues, all these opportunities to divide us. And the New Testament would say, if you really love somebody, the key test of loving another human being is learning to love them when you disagree with them the church of God has to grow in its ability to love people I mean especially outsiders right because they disagree with us about all kinds of things they might even disagree with us about who Jesus is but we still have to love them The reason I love this command to accept one another is that it calls us to work through our disagreements like mature, responsible adults. You know, we have to learn how to get along and be one and accept and embrace one another even when we disagree about um, key issues even related to, um, to theology. So, accept one another. And then one last one I'd like to talk about. I want to lift this one up. This is encourage one another. And I love this verse, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.11, therefore encourage one another and build one another up. I love this verse because it tells us what encouragement is meant for. It's meant to speak into or build up someone else. 
right? That's all it's for. And, and I mean, we live in a day and an age, folks, where there are unprecedented opportunities for us to follow through on encouraging one another. I mean, you have social media. You can get online and you can encourage someone. You can write an email. You can write a note. You can speak a word when you lock eyes with someone in a hallway. But this encouragement piece Don't underestimate the potency and the power of a simple word of encouragement. And so I just want to ask you right now, I just want to ask you to to sit really still for a moment and just ponder and think on who might God be calling you to encourage this week? Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've said yes to him, the scripture is clear that you have the spirit of God living inside of you, right? And that that Holy Spirit is probably in many of your minds right now, there's a name, there's a personality coming to mind. There's a person that you interact with at least one time every week, and that person is coming to mind. And that is the spirit of God leading you. So here's what I would say to you. Follow through on that prompting. Don't Don't resist the Holy Spirit as he's moving you to be an encouragement to build someone else up. Uh, Some of you think, well, pastor, my, my spiritual gift isn't encouragement. My spiritual gift is discouragement. Well, too bad, right? That's a gift you need to trade in and give back because that's not a true spiritual gift, by the way. I don't mean to Uh, burst your bubble, but discouragement is not a spiritual gift. But I do want to talk, I do want to talk about why we sometimes refuse to love and why we sometimes refuse to live out love in in day-to-day way through the one another's of Scripture, right? We sometimes fail to love because love is inconvenient, It's never easy to love because love always costs us something. Love always costs us our time. It always costs us our desires. It costs us our resources. But love always costs. It's never easy. It's often inconvenient. It's not easy. And so we refuse to do it. And I'll tell you this. As our lives get easier, we are increasingly formed by the desire for ease. So in 2015, researchers uh, went looking for answers as to why younger people were opting out of the convenience breakfast food that sustained their parents and their grandparents. I'm talking about cereal. And, uh, I'm, and here's what they found. They actually found an answer. Cereal, uh, younger people said, with the bother of a bowl and a spoon involved too much work. So almost 40% of millennials said that cereal was an inconvenient breakfast source because they had to clean up something after they ate it. Now listen, I'm not picking on millennials, 
Because the longing for ease affects every generation, and it's not a millennial problem, it's a human being problem, and I'll prove it. Um, So between 1890 and 1920, the lives of the average American changed dramatically with the introduction of electricity and running water. And these two things, and it's just so hard to get our minds around that that wasn't that long ago, right? That for most of human history, people lived without electricity and running water. But those, those innovations were, uh, were heralded to the world as labor-saving and ease-inducing. And it gets better. Um, when appliances were added to homes in the 1940s and the 1950s, these appliances were at first called labor-saving devices. Things like refrigerators and ovens and washers and dryers. And here's how they actually uh, marketed these things. They said that they promised, they spared people of bother. Bother. So as we're increasingly formed by the ease and the comfort of technology, uh, you know, we're formed by that ease. In other words, ease breeds a desire for more ease. Less bother breeds a desire for even less bother. So this leads us to an unsettling question. What do we become when we're no longer willing to bother? What do we become when we're no longer willing to bother or be bothered? What do we become? I mean, in theory, we we would all say we want to love better in the room, but in reality, we want it to tax us less. We want it to cost us less. We want it to be easier. We want it to be more convenient. And love is not convenient. And it's not easy. And it will always cost us. And as a man, Jesus was constantly harassed by crowds, touched by lepers, and bothered by need. And on the night of his arrest, Jesus took all of the bother of a basin and a towel, and he would carry that bother all the way to his execution. His love would cost him everything. And that's the kind of love that you and that I are called to to bring to the table, to have. Remember, I don't love other people the way I want to be loved. I love other people the way that Jesus has loved me. That's the new commandment, New Testament command, lay down your life kind of love that we're all given. But make no mistake, folks, listen to me. Look at me. Jesus is our model. Wives, your husband is not your model. In other words, you can't look at your husband and say, well, I'll love him when he loves me a little better. Husbands, your wife is not your model for love. Your model is Jesus Christ and him alone. 
Listen, your model is not how your co-workers love. Your model is not how your friends love. They are not your role model when it comes to love. The Lord Jesus Christ is your model for love. And so if you settle on a model less than the model that Jesus came to bring, you'll never love the way that Jesus called you to love. So what's it going to be? What's it going to be? And here's what I love about the call to love and these one another's that just flesh out what love looks like on a daily basis. What it means is that every day I'm going to have an opportunity to submit to someone else, someone else's needs, someone else's desires, and forego my own. Right? This is what we're talking about here. So how are you doing with your New Testament, New Covenant, New Commandment marching orders? The thing I love about love is that it's way less complex than all the laws and moralism of the Old Testament, right? But it's far more demanding. It's far, even though it's like only, it's almost like God says at the end of every day, I gave you one thing to do today right? How did you do at that? I mean, that's really, it's, you know, loving everyone that I lock eyes with well. Not the way I want to be loved, but the way that Jesus loved me. So I'm going to call up our worship team, and I'm going to pray for you and me, and then we're just going to respond to God uh, together in worship, okay? Let me pray for you. Everybody bow. Heavenly Father, I just pray, I pray that we would be men and women in this room that would approach you through the lens of your death and burial and resurrection on the cross, through the lens of grace, through the lens of faith, and that we would not drift back into moralism, that we wouldn't drift back into thinking we have to please you by keeping the law, but rather our call is the same one, Lord Jesus, that you gave to us, to love others as you have loved us, to care for one another, to honor one another, to give preference to one another, to bear with one another, to carry one another's burdens. Lord Jesus, those are the way that we flesh out love every single day. And so we ask you for strength and help. And Lord Jesus, we promise uh, as a community of followers that we will draw near to you when our gas, when our love tank starts to run empty, that we will come to you, receive your love so that we'll have new love to give out, uh, to pass through to other people. And so God, help us to be a church. Help us to be a community. Help us to be a family of believers that would love one another well. God, would you give us the strength every day to one another, one another better. I ask it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.